Putting this show together is not easy. I'm incredibly grateful to work with a team that even Michael Jordan would find impressive. They make Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant look like backup players. Uh, in seriousness, this extraordinary group of people help bring this show to life. I'm always working on a few projects at once, and I know that hiring is, is really hard, especially when you're focused on one project, and that's why I'm proud that our new presenting sponsor is ZipRecruiter. It uses what I like to call, I really like calling the money ball approach, using a combination of a algorithms and professionals to match right people for the right job. And if you love facts like I do, 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And right now you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash W-R-H. Again, it's for free. These guys are sponsors of the show that I've personally approved and hoped would be a part of our team. It's ZipRecruiter.com slash W-R-H. It was last summer when I started noticing all of the advertisements. August 31st was coming, which meant the 20-year anniversary of the day Princess Diana died. The ads were for a wide array of documentaries and specials that would revisit Diana's life and her death. CBS, ABC, NBC, HBO, PBS, Smithsonian Channel, CNN, TLC, you get the point. Many of these programs talked of groundbreaking revelations, explosive interviews, and other new insights, and so I thought I'd watch it all, take inventory, let the dust settle after a few months, and see what came from all of it. I just felt like how this anniversary was handled is important, at least interesting to note. Many of the documentaries, before getting to what they uncovered, certainly included the most well-known moments. When Princess Diana had enough with her marriage and was losing control of her narrative, she snuck a reporter into Buckingham Palace and famously said, when asked about her marriage, Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. The Daily Mail claimed that the interview, quote, plunged the monarchy into the greatest crisis since the abdication, referring to King Edward VIII's 1936 abandonment of the throne to marry an American socialite. And then, of course, Princess Diana's work that has been well-documented. While she was accused of going to third-world countries for good photo ops, she responded with, if I'm going to talk on behalf of any cause, I want to go and see the problem for myself and learn about it. While the HIV AIDS crisis was at its height and public misconception of the epidemic equally bad, the princess shook the hand of a patient suffering from the disease. People couldn't believe it. Royals hardly ever even shook the hands of commoners, much less people with a disease that at the time, many thought you could get just through skin contact. She went on to say, HIV does not make people dangerous to know. So you can shake their hands and give them a hug. Heaven knows they need it. I found myself late at night or in between meetings or during meetings watching YouTube videos of her. Diana's head oftentimes tilted downwards with her magnificent eyes looking up. There was a sense of, let's make things interesting about Diana. And I don't mean that in some subconscious way, as in, boy, did she make things interesting. I mean simply, she just defined cool. I'm not a political animal. But I think the biggest disease this world suffers from in this day and age is the disease of people feeling unloved. And I know that I can give love 
for a minute, for half an hour, for a day, for a month, but I can give, and I'm very happy to do that, and I want to do that. After watching all of the TV specials and re-watching some of them on accident, in addition to reading the books on Diana, the court hearings on her death, and attempting to better understand the wide array of very different characters involved, this episode will answer the following. One, how did Princess Diana die? After the last three months of purported new information on Diana, what has been found? What changed? Are there legitimate theories that say her death included foul play? There are also side questions. Put them in a tier two, if you will. Equally important, if not interesting. One, and I'll say first, and I know it's obvious to many, but I'll always be just amazed at this component, but how it's a fact that if Diana weren't a virgin, this story would not exist. Two, who really is Muhammad Al-Fayed? Three, who is Mr. Wonderful? Hint, he's fucking wonderful. Four, the role of men. From the moment she was married to the moment she died, men obviously used her in piggish and disturbing ways. And how, not to be an ass, but relative to Diana, how little these men accomplished. Okay, I guess that's just a fact, not really a question. And five, what was the role of the media in all of this? And how, perhaps more importantly, how have they covered it more recently? So I've taken a lot of inventory. I must admit, from the top, unlike other episodes, this one is far less objective. Perhaps this is because I was so naive going into it. I'm at a weird age where I remember when she died, but I don't remember exactly where I was, like many people just a year or two older than me. And there's a big difference between those two experiences or understandings of the impact Princess Diana had on the world. This episode is tough because everyone has different levels of what they know about Princess Diana. So I'll preface with saying, if you find any of this redundant, my apologies. But I think this will result in something fresh. I've always known the basics of her story and was never infatuated with it per se, but that has changed. It is astounding that approximately a billion people tuned in to watch or listen to the day Charles and Diana got married or the estimated two and a half billion that watched or listened to her funeral services. Again, 2.5 billion people out of the 5.8 billion people that were alive. There was, of course, her brother, Earl Spencer's incredible speech, in which he brilliantly articulated what made Diana great. There is a temptation to rush to canonize your memory. There is no need to do so. You stand tall enough as a human being of unique qualities, not need to be seen as a saint. Indeed, to sanctify your memory would be to miss out on the very core of your being, your wonderfully mischievous sense of humor with a laugh that bent you double, your joy for life transmitted wherever you took your smile and the sparkle in those unforgettable eyes, your boundless energy which you could barely contain. Princess Diana has become a person and in turn a part of history with which I found myself quite obsessed with. And thus the following is really an episode that is my interpretation of what really happened. I hope I do okay. Meet Prince Charles in his 20s. 
Now, I'll have some fun with him in this episode, but he's a complicated guy that is worthy of his own episode to fully understand. But make no mistake, in the 1970s, he reveled in his nickname that the media gave him, Action Man. Action Man was a good athlete. Cricket, hockey, windsurfing, horseback riding, he was known to be a bit of a daredevil. And so, with the introduction of Action Man comes the fact that really is just the entry point into the story. This fact is mind-boggling. It's demoralizing. It's awful. To many of you, maybe this is obvious, but I didn't realize how literal it was. Prince Charles, a.k.a. Action Man, at 31 years old, had to marry a virgin. Had to be a virgin. And his mother, the queen, told him in no uncertain terms it was time to get married. In fact, it was past that point. He must now hunt down this virgin. You could marry a woman who possibly had a child elsewhere. There was also the obvious element of nobility, or some would say purity. Said virgin must also check off four additional boxes that do crisscross a bit. One, be an aristocrat. Two, Anglo-Saxon. Three, Protestant. And four, under 30. Put in context, it's a relic of a bygone society, but nonetheless, virginity was a must. A word count of the number of times Charles was called daring in British papers in the 1970s is unequivocally high. But daring enough to face his mother? Marry a woman he was in love with and break with tradition? No. That level of historic, screw it, gonna do it my way, would take him over a decade to find. And even in that case, it was his mother again who sent him a letter saying she was giving him the green light to divorce the virgin whom they had hunted down in the first place some 15 years prior. And to be clear, many of us do what our mothers say. It was his uncle Dickie, no joke, otherwise known as Lord Louis, that told Charles to play the field until the right virgin came along. An action man did as told. Newspapers, and I can't say they are fully reputable, have counted up to 21 women he dated. And here are a few. Lady Dale Tyron, Lady Amanda Notchbull, Anna Wallace, Sabrina Guinness, the granddaughter of Sir Arthur Guinness, who had also dated Mick Jagger, Jack Nicholson, Rod Stewart, and David Bowie, and Lady Sarah Spencer, Diana's older sister. She gave Diana her blessing to see Charles and remains close to Prince William and Harry. There was also, of course, Camilla Parker Bowles. She was already in a relationship and also not a virgin. Deal breaker. The Queen had enough. When hearing about Diana, the Queen invited her over for the weekend, not Charles. Kate Williams, a royal historian, has noted at length how Diana's father was good friends with the Queen and how they, in certain ways, plotted to get Diana towards the top of the line. Andrew Morton, a prolific writer and author of Diana, Her True Story, said it was a semi-arranged marriage. Charles and Diana got married in 1981. It was in 1992 that they separated, then divorcing in 1996. During the summer of 1997, Diana's first summer as a single woman, the press were enamored with photos of Diana in bathing suits. And this is something widely debated, how Princess Diana's looks played a role in the coverage of her. It's a debate for another time. She was in San Tropez, and although the world was looking at all these photos, Diana, according to friends, was really trying to impress one man. 
And if they say who you love says a lot about you, this man, at least from what I've read, shows Diana's taste. Meet Mr. Wonderful. That was Princess Diana's nickname for Hasnat Khan. I'd be naive to not point out that some believe she fell for Mr. Wonderful partly because she knew the royals would be enraged at her dating a Muslim from Pakistan, but I don't think that's worthy of more than a mention. Because Mr. Wonderful is certainly wonderful. On top of this, they had begun dating in mid-July of 1996 and were able to hide the relationship for a staggering 18 months. They met when Dr. Khan was performing surgery on one of Diana's close friends. Diana fell hard for Khan and spent 17 days straight looking after her friend and chasing after Khan. In Tina Brown's book, The Diana Chronicles, Brown says, quote, The princess became a student of cardiology. Her night table groaned under a fat copy of Grey's Anatomy and piles of surgical reports. She watched Casualty, a hospital soap opera, every Saturday night. Her closet filled up with a colorful selection of shalwar kameezies, the silk tunics and trousers worn by Pakistani women. She even considered converting to Islam. Before Khan prepared for an open-heart surgery, the princess asked if she could watch. Khan answered with, anybody with the courage enough to watch a heart operation can come in. It seems Mr. Wonderful is really, really in love with Diana and it has nothing to do with her being a princess, which is what makes it really, well, just really cool. And where he gets all of us, or at least me, to even love her more, is that he wasn't a dashingly handsome man, or again, according to societal determinations and what the media deems as handsome, I actually think he's quite the gem, but somebody Diana, the beauty, would date, says one reporter, he's overweight, his clothes don't match, hardly tidy, his place is apparently a mess. The one, which the princess also called him, was clearly in this relationship for the right reasons, for someone's brains, their heart, their soul. Diana loves Dr. Khan. She loves him so much that she goes to his homeland to introduce herself to his family. She does so without him knowing. The thing is, he comes from a strict Pakistani family. His mother would never, never allow Mr. Wonderful to marry anyone that wasn't from his background. Strangely, Mr. Wonderful and Action Man are similar in this way. And when Mr. Wonderful finds out Diana's taken her own trip to meet the parents, which I think is just a baller, brazen move, he flips out, calling her a range of disparaging names that leaves Diana devastated. When you're angry, you sure can say things you don't mean. So... The next day, she goes to the ballet. Some say to cheer herself up after this terrible incident, but in my research, she had planned this ballet ahead of time. She loved the ballet. She had grown up with parents that had essentially abandoned her, too busy for her, and ballet had become something she could go to focus on, bring her into another world so she was allowed to escape reality. At the ballet, she sees Muhammad Al-Fayed, Al-Fayed will be in nearly every documentary one sees about Princess Diana during the 20-year anniversary of her death. And he, albeit reluctantly, is featured in this as well.
I've had the same six best friends since elementary school. We still hang out at least twice a month. Every year, we also get together the night before Thanksgiving, play some poker, reminisce about how our basketball team was eighth in New York State. So recently, I told them I had a dinner all handled. Much to everyone's surprise, I actually did, all because of Omaha Steaks, which has become my favorite meal. Also, it's a perfect gift, one that many of my friends and family can be expecting from me this year. I always have problems finding the right gift. This is bulletproof. Unlike TV with podcasts, you actually get to make sure you really like the product that helps brings your podcast to life. And so Omaha Steaks and my show has put together a very good deal. For only $49.99, you can get my family gift pack when you go to omahasteaks.com and enter my code WRH in the search bar. That is 75% off. Right now, Omaha Steaks is giving this exclusive savings just to our listeners. So here's everything that you're going to get for less than $50. Two filet mignons, two top sirloins, two boneless pork chops, four boneless chicken breasts, four kielbasa sausages, four burgers, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartars, an Omaha Steaks seasoning packet, plus get four additional kielbasa sausages for free. This meat is aged for 21 days, which gives it a really flavorful, tender aged beef, plus seafood, poultry, pork, veggies, you name it. Point is, go to omahasteaks.com, enter my code WRH for what really happened in the search bar, 75% savings. It's the best gift you can give. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter my code WRH in the search bar. 75% savings. It's guaranteed to be a hit. Mohammed Al-Fayed, with an estimated net worth close to $2 billion, was known at the time as the owner of Harrods in London, the famous luxury department store. In addition to a soccer team, and the luxurious Ritz Hotel in Paris. His family has deep ties to Saudi Arabia and Saudi arms dealers. From an early age, Al-Fayed has a craving to not just be a part of the Saudi establishment, but the British establishment. Not only did he purchase Harrods in London, but although this would be debated, restored it. He also sponsored the Royal Windsor Horse Show, and financially supported a variety of politicians, not always legally. He also purchased an upper-class magazine titled Punch. When he bought Harrods, Al-Fayed expected to, at the very least, get the British citizenship he wanted, that he craved. Certainly a requirement should he want to be a part of the establishment. An article from 1988 in The Economist points out that, quote, in France, when Al-Fayed restored the Paris Ritz, He was given the Legion d'honneur, and Jacques Chirac, the president, were marked on his, quote, unselfishness and charity, going on to express his, quote, infinite gratitude. In Britain, after all this, he was not even given his passport. All of this context is important. Al-Fayed's feuds are endless and go up the chain on British royalty. Even Prince Philip opted to get rid of his Herod's membership. Al-Fayed actually turned himself in sometime in the late 1990s after breaking into a safe deposit box of a British tycoon who played a large part in declining Al-Fayed's citizenship. 
Al-Fayed also restored the Duke and Duchess of Windsor's former house in Paris, a house that most considered haunted, the same house Diana visited on her last day in life. And with this, I remind myself there are so many incredibly rich, sensational characters and plots in this story that it's hard to not get sidetracked. With that in mind, Mr. Al-Fayed also sponsored the English National Ballet, which is why he was there that same day Diana was. The same day after, her and Mr. Wonderful had gotten in that explosive fight. While the two caught up, Diana mentions her challenge in finding a private place for her and the kids to spend time during the summer, her first summer as a divorcee. Al-Fayed invites her to stay on his private yacht in Saint-Tropez. There'd be private cars, planes to and from, security all the time. But privacy in Saint-Tropez is a bit of an absurd idea. Go to the Federated States of Micronesia if you want privacy. Although with Diana, as she'd end up proving, you could go to some of the harshest places on Earth and the photographers would follow. So opposed to taking her kids to an estate surrounded by paparazzi, her thinking is that they could go play water sports, which they, like most children, really enjoy. The sincerity of Muhammad Al-Fayed's invitation to help the princess is, as they say at the elite scientific schools around the world, bogus. Mr. Al-Fayed couldn't have imagined a better jab at the royals than having the future King of England spending time on his yacht. It must have made Buckingham Palace mad. But it's also not like Diana wasn't aware of this. She knew how to make people go mad. She was smart. Diana was ultimately looking for something for her kids. She said yes. And so the next day, Al-Fayed reportedly purchases the actual yacht they'd use. Although, as it turns out, he did already have a yacht, but he told her that this $20 million yacht was the one that he had always used. As it turns out, Al-Fayed is acting as the master puppeteer. It turns out his real goal is to get Diana to meet his playboy son, Dodie, even though Dodie was about to get married. And so it was at this point in my research, I was going back and forth from old raw footage of the princess to these special anniversary episodes more recently aired. I first thought the specials would come out in August, but as it turns out, it seems each network's weekly magazine shows were upset that Diana would be covered under its own special news banner in August. So as a result, they got to do a sort of we're six months away from the actual event happening show. In other words, 48 Hours had Gail King host a special on May 22nd. NBC had a special Dateline episode on Diana that same month. And then... There was Martin Bashir, an ABC's two-night special titled The Last 100 Days of Diana. There were so many quote-unquote specials that I oftentimes found myself confused. And when you take into account the TV specials over in England, the titles of each episode really made it confusing. PBS had a version of Britain Channel 4's Diana in her own words. PBS called it Diana Her Story. But was that the same or different as National Geographic's Diana in her own words? Point is, there was a lot out there. Networks found superb writers, and I'm not kidding, writers for the voiceovers or hosts to play up this royal drama. And if they didn't find the right writers, they found people to interview, even if they were people hardly connected to Princess Diana. 
Sometimes it's not even clear what their connection is. Maybe Tamron Hall and Deborah Norville, both acclaimed journalists, are interviewed on Diana's death, but we aren't told what makes them the experts. And the interviews or voiceovers are something else. Says one interviewee, quote, It was always burning. A low flame, a high flame, but it was always burning. Another, this fairy tale was not going to have a happy ending. Was this how it was supposed to end? And of course, the misuse of irony. She found a prince, and ironically enough, a real prince. Or, we had been told she was a princess, but she was a warrior. The sounds of snapshots of images, sweeping Titanic-esque dramatic music, like what I'm playing for you now, recreations of a blonde-haired woman that looks like Diana, although her face always just out of frame or blurry, voiceovers claiming that there was a quote-unquote exclusive interview whom I would jot down, interested that this person was only giving this one special interview for a broadcast, only to see said person pop up again in a special I'd watch a few hours later. So indeed, the 20-year anniversary of her death was met by not so much a study and celebration on Diana, but as a study on how to make not very thoughtful TV. And although I may come across here as a cynic, I do think that, if anything, the work done in the last few months on Princess Diana and potential revelations is more of a class on how to use reality TV to dumb down a story, how to provoke viewers with mindless insight attempting to pass as thoughtful documentary work. The HBO special might be an exception, although it seems quite clear it's produced with Buckingham Palace and their approval and final cut. So not really a balanced documentary. But to be clear, there's also a lot to be said for the great reporting that was done. Former Observer editor Donald Trelford pointed out some of the most basic inconsistencies with Al-Fayed. Quote, Fayed is not, for example, entitled to the aristocratic prefix Al-Fayed, being the son of an impoverished school teacher. And he says he's 77 when some reports suggest he's actually 81, having been born in Alexandria on January 27, 1929. As one report says, lies become the truth and the truth became a lie. The article goes on to point out that Fayed could not have had the 615 million pounds, the asking price for Herod's, from his own resources. It fell just short of saying it was really the Sultan of Brunei's money. Regardless, Al-Fayed did have hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. And his son Dodi is a huge benefactor. Dodi is a playboy, rumored to have girlfriends including Julia Roberts, Brooke Shields, Winona Ryder, and Nancy Sinatra. Again, rumored. In 1986, he married the model Suzanne Grigard, but they divorced after eight months. Dodi once said to a friend, quote, When am I going to meet a woman so famous she'll get my face on the cover of People magazine? To ensure we don't single-story Dodi, Despite his reputation, I saw several reports outside of just his friends that say he was also a sensitive guy, oftentimes projecting his own insecurities. The Vanity Fair writer Dominic Dunn said of him, quote, Whatever else he was, he was a nice guy. There was something very gentle about him. On July 14th, this first summer that Diana has as a 
free woman, Dodie is with his fiancée, model Kelly Fisher, about a month away from getting married, when his dad calls him and instructs him to meet him on the yacht. Dodie and Kelly go, and Muhammad keeps Dodie and Kelly on the smaller yacht. At certain points, he has Dodie come and hang out with Diana. Incredibly, this works. They have a good time, talk, drink, eat, and flirt. The two are photographed together. My informed opinion, Diana sees Dodie as a summer fling, and really, not much more than a guy that may get Mr. Wonderful jealous. What makes me kind of sad is that the reason Mr. Wonderful really liked Diana for who she was does not seem to be the reason Dodie likely did want to even meet her in the first place. Diana returns in August to see Dodie, now without her children, and a photograph is taken of her and Dodie that becomes a worldwide phenomena, a photo known as The Kiss. But you could do a mini What Really Happened episode around this kiss, seeing as you can't really tell if they're kissing. But hey, a decent enough photo and a two-word headline, and the truth wasn't going to stop the narrative from playing around the world. There are articles I've read that go to great lengths to demonize Princess Diana and explain how she was beyond cunning and revengeful, how these photos were meant to upset Dr. Khan and the royal family. But I think if she were a man, these articles would talk about just how strategic and strong she was. Am I defending Princess Diana quite a bit here? Yeah, I am. Reports are that Princess Diana was excited to get back to see her kids, as this second trip is now ending. Her and Dodie get on a private jet to go back, and while up in the air, as billionaires can do, a decision is made to stop in Paris for the night. Up until the day before I recorded this, really the few hours before I recorded this, I had a detailed timeline of how their entire last day was spent. But it's easy to find online. So we're going to fast forward to midnight. It's now August 31st in Paris. Reports are that Dodie has planned on proposing to Diana that night. Originally, this was going to be done at the family residence close to the Arc de Triomphe. But paparazzi forced them to spend most of the night secluded in the Imperial Suite at the Ritz Hotel, which Dodie's father owns. But around midnight is when it appears Dodie, with his father's permission, always with his father's permission, decides to get back to the family home where apparently the engagement ring is. So Dodie and his father decide that rather than using the two qualified chauffeurs who have driven Diana and Dodie to the Ritz Hotel earlier in the night, the two chauffeurs will instead create a diversion. Meanwhile, Henri Paul, off-duty at the time, is called in. He is deputy head of security at the Ritz and will drive the two to the residence. At approximately midnight, they take off, and at around 12.23 a.m., the speeding car, trying to outmaneuver the photographers, collides with a concrete pillar. Trevor Reese Jones, a bodyguard who had just buckled his belt, survived. Dodie and Henri die instantly. The princess is treated on the scene, en route to the hospital, at the hospital, but is pronounced dead at 4 a.m. Henri had at least two drinks that evening. His blood alcohol level was determined to be more than three times France's legal limit. A September 1997 analysis of Paul's blood, hair, and spinal cord later detect Prozac 
as well as another antidepressant sometimes used to combat alcohol withdrawal. The conspiracy theories soon began, and largely because of one man, Mohammed Al-Fayed. He thinks there is no way that this is some simple car crash. No way one of his drivers was drunk. He starts saying the blood is on other people's hands. Muhammad's response is hard to understand because it's so personal. One is that ultimately he lost his son. There's nothing more devastating than that. But he also lost his son while fighting that same British establishment, which he had been fighting his whole life. And now the British establishment is saying that Al-Fayed is responsible for the death of the princess, the future king's mother. So what does Al-Fayed do? He doubles down. He has a massive list of people who he says were in on a conspiracy, including the MI6, CIA, the Queen, you name it. He gives 175 reasons as to why this really happened. They were murdered because they were going to get married, a marriage between the mother of the future king of England and a Muslim son of an Egyptian was totally unacceptable to the ruling British establishment. We know that the National Security Agency secretly recorded Princess Diana conversations during her romance with Dodi. Independent witnesses have heard some of the tapes. Please contact your member of Congress and help me to campaign for the release of the documents that will reveal the truth about the tragedy. I am sure those tapes will confirm that Diana was pregnant and was planning to marry Dodi and live in America. And so now, meet Martin Gregory. And if you look him up, don't go down the rabbit hole I did reading up on the Martin Gregory, who is really interesting, the owner of several ultra-extravagant art galleries specializing in China trade paintings. No, no, no. I'm talking about the Martin Gregory, who is a British reporter and has won the Amnesty International and Royal Television Society Awards for his investigative work on human rights. If you love facts... You'll really love Gregory. He has an old school vibe to him, just a straight shooter, sort of like, you know, what are we doing here? You want to do this or not? In many interviews, he'll put his hands up when something must be made clear and say, look. Or if he's showing two different positions, he'll go back and forth from his right hand to his left. It's what smart people like Gregory do, at least I think, taking what many think is something awfully complicated and just break it down to a few basic facts for people like me to understand. At one point when I was watching him do an interview, I turned off the volume to see if I could still follow the assessment he was giving, and although I thought it was quite the clever idea, it was really quite stupid. Gregory is the author of Diana, The Last Days, and The Diana Conspiracy, which exhaustively researches any possibilities that there was foul play or a conspiracy theory of some sort. One of the hundreds of examples, why did the ambulance take so long to get to the hospital? Many thought foul play was involved when they heard that Diana's ambulance took an hour to get her to a hospital that was only four miles away. The driver, paramedics, or the French and British government at large perhaps played a hand in such a lengthy trip. 
However, unlike in England or the United States, France's protocol is to, in layman's terms, do as much saving as they can on location or in the ambulance than at the hospital. Not only that, but Dr. Mark Garoud, whose paramedics attended Diana in the tunnel, says his team was commended for getting Diana to the hospital alive. Part of what took so long was that Diana suffered a heart attack just after the crash. Quote, there are no recorded cases in medical history of a patient surviving such an injury, said Dr. Garoud. Diana died because her heart had been displaced by the force of the crash, tearing her pulmonary vein. So, like most things in life, the answer isn't as simple as many demanded. Why did it take an hour? Well, they were treating her on the scene and in the ambulance. But a lot of these unjustified conspiracy theories seem born out of when you need to ask additional questions that are simply required to get to the truth, but one is impatient for that answer. Why not just take her straight to the hospital? Well, France does things differently. There are pros and cons, and that's kind of it. Rumors that she was pregnant? She told this apparently to one person, Mohammed Al-Fayed. You have to let the facts speak for themselves because, as John Adams said, facts are stubborn things. When something new has popped up in recent years, like when Paul Burrell, Diana's butler, revealed that Diana had written in her diary a fear of dying in a car crash set up by her husband, many thought, well, shit, that must be something. Martin Gregory has remained even-handed, saying, quote, Diana's letter provides an interesting, even shocking insight into her fragile state of mind in 1996, but sheds no light into her death. If Paul Burrell, Diana's butler, had really felt that this letter was relevant to Diana's death, why did he not give it to the French police during their lengthy inquiry? Why wait until now? Unquote. Burrell, at first a trusted source on all things Diana, has turned his closeness with a princess into a business. He also lied in court. This is from an Associated Press report. Burrell purportedly said he did not tell the inquest the full truth about the Paris car crash that killed Diana and Dodi fired. In a videotape obtained by the paper, Burrell is quoted as boasting, Do you honestly think I've told everything I know? Of course I haven't. In January, Burrell gave three days of often contradictory testimony to the inquest. Roger Kaplinsky, London. After repeated lies in court, Lord Justice Scott Baker said, quote, in the end, there is an important issue as to the credibility of the witness. He even wrote his version of a tell-all book, which left both Prince William and Harry feeling betrayed. Both said this through a spokesperson. We cannot believe that Paul, who was entrusted with so much, could abuse his position in such a cold and overt betrayal. It is not only deeply painful for the two of us, but also for everyone else affected. And it would mortify our mother if she were alive today. But of course, Butler Paul Burrell wouldn't let it go and asked for a meeting with the fellas. I am very happy to go to Clarence House or wherever William and Harry want to go, sit with them face to face, explain to them why I've done this book, explain to them more about their mother's life, to tell them about their mother's life, which they didn't witness some of it because they were away at school. I'm very happy to do that and sit with them and, and justify my account. As if that would happen. So I thought that's unfortunate. Too bad somebody who knew her so well is no longer credible, no longer can really be interviewed. Well, hold on. 
Burrell has gone on to appear on Dancing with the Stars in England, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, and Big Brother. But when I was watching the ABC special, sure enough, guess who popped up throughout? The butler, Paul Burrell. ABC, in my opinion, apparently allows Burrell to not just be interviewed in their program, but ends part one of the show with him just bullshitting. When asked about what Mr. Wonderful's last call to Diana would have been, he says with almost perfect dramatic delivery, quote, I think has not Khan's last call would have been, isn't it about time you come home to me because I miss you. It's one small example of the ways in which the media really messed up Princess Diana's 20-year anniversary. In terms of the conspiracy theories, my man Martin Gregory flips the script and ends up asking several questions for Mr. Al-Fayed that require answers. Gregory concludes that Mr. Al-Fayed, quote, has to confront the fact that Diana was traveling from a Fayed hotel to a Fayed apartment in a Fayed car with a Fayed driver. The last picture ever taken of the princess sitting next to Mr. Fayed's son and behind a Fayed bodyguard. Gregory said this to the Associated Press in 2007. I think that because Diana died young at the age of 36, she joins James Dean, JFK, Elvis, John Lennon, all icons who died young. Because she died young and in an accident, she and her memory is preserved as if in aspic um, forever. Read from the results of the French judicial system's findings, and in particular, Judge Hervé Stéphane, and you'll see why they concluded that the paparazzi were some distance from the Mercedes when it crashed and were not responsible. It was just chauffeur Henri Paul. Read Operation Paget, a report commissioned by the United Kingdom and Commissioner John Stevens from the Metropolitan Police in London, and you'll see why they conclude it's Henri Paul and the reckless paparazzi at fault. Look at the 175 conspiracy claims Muhammad Al-Fayed made, or better yet, watch Unlawful Killing, a 2001 British documentary film that he, of course, financed along with a lot of other documentaries he's behind. Most are banned, but it's the internet, baby. You can find a way. Read it all, watch it all. It really is the simplest of answers. The driver of the car Diana gets into is drunk. The driver says he won't let the paparazzi catch up to him, as if a dare. Diana isn't wearing a seatbelt. There is a circus of paparazzi hovering around them as they go into that tunnel. The car loses control, and people died. Diana, Dodie, and Henri were three of the over 1,000 fatalities in France that year lost to drunk driving. That's what happened. What really happened? First, I wouldn't be shocked if Diana had her way and she could produce a two-hour special on the night of her death. She'd want to focus on the man that bears either total responsibility for his, her, and Dodie's death or partial responsibility, Henri Paul. Although one can find plenty of material online on Henri, it's not as easy as you think, just not as easy, to really get to know Henri, the driver. Henri Paul was certainly a drinker and didn't have the best of luck with relationships. In terms of where he was living when he died, the Irish Times said, quote, Henri Paul's neighborhood is an old, if 
soulless part of Paris, unquote. Soulless in Paris? That's hard to pull off. They also report that Paul spent the little time he had at home on a computer flight simulation game. He dreamed of being a pilot, but his eyesight was too poor. Sometimes he would enjoy playing the piano. A bartender at the lesbian bar near his apartment said he'd come in and they'd talk about the novels and thrillers both would read at the same time. Henri seems to have been an alcoholic for a large part of his life. It's unclear when he started taking antidepressants, but we do know that depression is an issue Diana talked openly about, an issue her children continue to talk about to this day. This isn't my version of that New York Times article that came out making a Midwest Nazi seem to be like a regular dude one could enjoy having a barbecue with. I'm simply saying that in my opinion, in my research about Diana, I would suggest that she would want to make a two-hour documentary about the good, the bad, the ugly, the full story of the man that will forever be known for one thing, killing a princess. As my research on this topic concluded, I realized Diana unintentionally, at least at first, gave the world insight into the royal family. She also gave insight these last few months on how certain elements of the corporate media not just still treat this topic with little sensitivity, but more shamefully treat we, the viewers, as idiots. I don't think that's because we're stupid. I think it's because they think we're stupid. They offered up lazy lines from discredited people, reenactments that made real life appear like a lousy soap opera. Like I said, this would be an awfully subjective episode because this is all only in my opinion. Maybe I was looking in the wrong places, but I definitely did some looking. So rather than continuing on some diatribe of networks and cable television, I've been watching raw videos, or as close as they come to raw, online. There's quite a few of Diana giving speeches, talking to press, visiting hospitals, or conversations with her speech coach in which she really opens up and probably should have never made its way online, much less onto one of the specials, which of course it did. But if you go online and search funny videos of Diana, you'll find some great stuff. Inevitably, if you watch closely, even though it only lasts a few seconds at most, you'll find videos of Princess Diana oftentimes exiting royal planes, yachts, and trains by grabbing the handlebars and sliding off. Her way of having a moment of fun in an otherwise stuffy royal family and life. What I'm about to say I was at first hesitant about because it sounds a bit overdramatic, a bit like it's from my pot-smoking days when I thought weed helped my depression and made me more creative when editing movies, although it most certainly didn't help. But I assure you the following is, in fact, from my sober mind and what has become one of my lasting images of Diana. When you have a minute, watch her getting off whatever the royal vehicle is. Watch her first rub her shoes to see the material she'd be working with before sliding off. And then watch her place her hands on the railings to hold on and then freely glide down to the tarmac. If you have an extra minute, play it in slow motion. You'll see her take flight or slide downwards, if only for a few moments. Her feet lifted. She's free. Free from the lies, free from the stuffiness, the bullshit, the lifelessness. And then, no sooner than liftoff, she lands. One can assume in these split seconds that she was hoping to land somewhere like the lands she would write about in her diary, 
a location in which she could walk on the streets and nobody would recognize her. But this was never the case. After such landings, it was time for a bow, a handshake, a gesture of some sort. And this is what she knew she had signed up for and why she made a point of never feeling bad for herself. And I think in this spirit, any what really happened must include a celebration of what she did. If there is indeed a heaven or an afterlife, you probably won't find Diana. You may meet her or pass by her, but she'll be enjoying the freedom of anonymity. She may be sitting down drinking a juicer, this detail I couldn't let go of, before it became a fad. More recently, Diana insisted on having juicers consistently of carrots, celery, parsley, and spinach. Regardless, perhaps she is looking on, a juicer in hand, listening to a recording of one of her favorites. Like this, Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto. And smiling, as she sees her two sons, Harry and William, taking pages out of their mother's playbook. As they say, life doesn't come with a manual, but if you're lucky, it comes with a mom. And I'm not trying to make this sound like some network special. I'm just trying to put this all in context. When Prince William and his wife, Kate Middleton, now the Duchess of Cambridge, left the hospital with their new son, Prince George, people were astounded when they left. William got in the front seat and drove them home. A royal monarch driving? That was unheard of. Don't forget, William's dad used to have, perhaps still does, somebody squeeze the toothpaste out of the bottle for him. But it shouldn't be that surprising when William's mother demanded that William be born in a hospital, becoming the first future king to not be born in a royal residence. She insisted that their life be as normal as possible. And as the usual with Princess Diana... She didn't just talk the talk. William was born in a spare 14 by 14 foot room with a $230 daily rate. As one of my favorite basketball coaches once said, it's the little details that are vital. Little things make big things happen. What are these big things? There is a long list of ways in which Harry and William give back, which includes significant time fighting homelessness helping those with HIV and AIDS, speaking openly about mental health. Even Prince Harry fought in the war in Afghanistan, doing two tours, having to leave the first tour after 77 days because a magazine revealed that he was there. He ultimately spent 10 years in the armed forces. I'm in no doubt that my two deployments to Afghanistan changed the direction of my life. There is very little that can truly prepare you for the reality of war. The experiences can be stark and long-lasting. One thing we have to talk about more is breaking down these barriers around so-called invisible injuries, like post-traumatic stress, just as we have for physical injuries. And so he went on to create the Invictus Games, an international multi-sport event in which wounded, injured, or sick armed services personnel and other veterans take part in sports, including wheelchair basketball, sitting volleyball, and indoor rowing. I was moved when reading an ESPN story about a group of Romanian veterans that took part in the games. With the headline, there is one thing these Romanian men all have in common. They went through hell and came out stronger. They are Invictus. Yes, a catching and moving headline, also followed by intimate portraits of these brave soldiers and quotes of what the games meant to them. So in the end, we have seven answers to the questions I asked from the beginning. Tier one, answer to question one, it was a drunk driver with a ton of nutty, 
really aggressive paparazzi chasing him. Tier two question on virginity. Well, these days, Charles could have married Camilla. It is known that the times of this policy of having to be a virgin are over. A spokesperson for Prince William, who refused to be identified because of royal policy, said palace officials would not comment on whether attitudes have changed, preferring to leave that role to others. Three, who really is Mohammed Al-Fayed? He has said some awful things, has done a lot of bad things, and those should remain well-documented. He also recently said he's given up, and I'm not going to sit here and lambast a dad who lost his son. Four, who is Mr. Wonderful? Well, my original hint that he's fucking wonderful seems to remain true. He did get married per his mom's orders, but got divorced. He remains a bit of an unknown in this story. Perhaps it's better that way. It seems to be one of the few parts that has remained pure. Certainly not happy, but at least not tainted. And then last, what was the role of the media in this? And how have they covered this story more recently? Like I said, I don't get why the networks seem to treat us all like idiots with these documentaries, but maybe one of the networks can come in and we can have a totally fair conversation. I get how TV works. I really do. I know the demos they have to be aware of, the absurd numbers they're asked to hit, the competition, the audience testing that goes behind it all, but I still don't buy why it was handled the way it was. And so what really happened? The following two-minute speech by Prince Harry on the 10th anniversary of his mother's passing. William and I can separate life into two parts. There were those years when we were blessed with the physical presence beside us of both our mother and father. And then there are the 10 years since our mother's death. When she was alive, we completely took for granted her unrivaled love of life. Laughter, fun and folly. She was our guardian, friend and protector. She never once allowed her unfaltering love for us to go unspoken or undemonstrated. She will always be remembered for her amazing public work. But behind the media glare, to us, just two loving children, she was quite simply the best mother in the world. We would say that, wouldn't we? But we miss her. She kissed us last thing at night, her beaming smile greeted us from school. She laughed hysterically and uncontrollably when sharing something silly she might have said or done that day. She encouraged us when we were nervous or unsure. She, like our father, was determined to provide us with a stable and secure childhood. To lose a parent so suddenly at such a young age, as others have experienced, is indescribably shocking and sad. It was an event which changed our lives forever, as it must have done for everyone who lost someone that night. But what is far more important to us now and into the future is that we remember our mother as she would have wished to be remembered, as she was, fun-loving, generous, down-to-earth, and entirely genuine. We both think of her every day. We speak about her 
and laugh together at all the memories. But put simply, she made us and so many other people happy. May this be the way that she is remembered. So as always, I look forward to getting your feedback and insight. You can leave a message by calling us at 347-674-6980. That's 347-674-6980. Or you can go to our website, jenkspod.com. That's jenkspod.com. Or you can always follow me on Twitter at Andrew Jenks. What Really Happened is produced by Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, Seven Bucks Productions in association with Cadence 13 Studios. So we're wrapping up season one and have received an incredible amount of feedback and follow-up. And there's a lot of events that have occurred since we've been recording this season. So make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Andrew Jenks or go to jenkspod.com. We'll be back in January with reaction episodes where we'll find out what others know, if there's updates. This is what really happened. Again, make sure, do me a favor, continue to rate, review, and recommend this podcast. That's what it's all about. And so I want to sincerely thank you. And like Churchill would say, I really mean sincerely. Otherwise, I wouldn't say it.